welcome back to Radio Morpork. I can only imagine how thrilled you are because I am at least 70% that thrilled that you are to be back at last. I'm talking about Terry Pratchett's Discworld again, book by book, hopefully quite regularly. I'm Colin Cairns and I'm joined not by Rose Fortune. Uh, she has unfortunately had to bow out due to work commitments. So, uh, taking her place in much the same way that Agnes Nitt took the place of McGrath Garlic in the Lankra Coven Ooh, is nice Steve Hill. Very much the silver medal of the Discworld uh, world. So, um, <laughs> yeah, some big shoes to fill. Um, if I'm ever not being rose enough, uh, let me know and I'll try and be funnier, uh, generally more sincere and a better person. Oh, well, <laughs> I'd like to see you try that. <laughs> You may remember Steve from our Mort episode, but don't let that put you off. <laughs> It'll be really good, I promise. I was told I have to be well behaved. Uh, so for anyone who has um, not heard this before, uh, Radio Morpark is a podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series book by book in chronological order. We reviewed them, discussed them, analyzed them, and at the end we uh, ranked them. A purely frivolous but incredibly rigorous and well-argued exercise to find out what the greatest Discworld book in history of the world ever is or what our collective favorite is. Uh, this time around we're talking about Eric. Um, it's actually Faust, but crossed out in case um, you didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, <laughs> I, I said the title in two syllables there. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> it's considerably yeah. longer to communicate what you can what you can see when you see Faust crossed out on the front page. This is all I have to contribute. I'm going to interrupt with banal points every now and then. <laughs> well, people, people, people have made it into podcasting world with less than that to contribute. Um, yeah, myself and Rose used to joke uh, that our the long hiatus this podcast went on was because. Eric was so difficult to analyze uh, because for I'm sure everyone listening to this knows, but Eric originally uh, was done as an illustrated book with illustrations by Josh Kirby. So the actual, but nowadays it's often released with the main series in just a regular um, novel format, sans illustrations other than the ones on the cover. So it's a lot thinner than the others, not only in page terms, my copy clocks in at 155 pages in terms of narrative as well it's kind of thinner <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's very much just a, a like a faust parody a kind of romp true have you ever hell. have you ever seen the um, illustrated version i've never come across and i didn't know until that we decided to do this that it actually was illustrated originally um i i, I came across it actually when i was looking for a version to uh because i think i'd rented it from the library the first time i'd read it just a normal novel version so i was I was in chapters uh, in the second hand section looking for one and I they had a copy of the illustrated one and I had a look through it and I don't think I bought it at the time maybe because it was more expensive but also I think part of my rationale was that if we're kind of discussing it with the rest of the Discworld books and ranking it alongside them then it kind of makes sense to like read if as much you know in a similar manner to them than you know like I felt like if if, if we're reading the illustrated version and we're discussing it in comparison to the other books and bringing the illustrations into it then what's to stop us like reviewing the comic of the color of magic rather than the color of magic yeah you know? yeah i suppose so hmm. uh, but had you ever read eric before uh, reading it for this podcast i had yeah and but the thing is um because as as you say that uh this was originally released as an illustrated version but i'm not sure when it actually came out as a novel as the one that we have here now i feel like it was later because it suddenly just sort of a piece we were discussing this earlier there is the list at the start that kind of tells you the order of the Discworld series and a lot of the earlier copies didn't have Eric in it yeah. at all so I remember I just kind of spotted it one day and I thought like Terry my good friend Terry <laughs> was just kind of like you know inserting it like randomly in there so as if it's always been there it's like I know it wasn't always there so I thought it was written much much later so I think I think I read it I, I read most of these in order and I think it was around the time I was reading maybe the fifth elephant or so that I read this one. Yeah. So quite late on. Yeah. It must have, well, if you were reading them in order around then, it must have seemed really strange because I mean, Eric reading it sort of as it's published now in order in a novel form, even at the early stage of the Discworld we're at, it still seems like a real throwback and oddity among like, if you look at the books on either side of it, you've got, um, uh, guards, guards and moving pictures, you know, like it mm. feels very odd among that company. Um, so for you having got, to the fifth elephant that we were at the others, it must have seemed really strange at the time, did it? Mm, very, very bizarre, I have to say. 
it was I, I think I mentioned this to you before as well I thought that it was uh, Terry Pratchett just saw an opportunity to insert it in there because I believe the last it was sorcery that came up first and then I thought that segued very neatly into uh, interesting times I thought it was like a very very mm-hmm. neat segue because it's basically Rince Wynn saying well, not saying he goes into the dungeon dimensions and then he just sort of reappears in, inter- in interesting yeah. times he just lands on uh, he's on a tropical island and I was wondering about this too I don't know how he gets there from the end of Eric it's 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 great because it's not specific but it's it's left open to interpretation yeah. and it's very easy to say well he got out of the dungeon dimensions and he's there and at the end of Eric uh, it's basically he got out of hell he basically got out of hell <laughs> it's not a huge jump between the dungeons um, dungeon dimensions and hell so you know it, yeah. I just thought it was a neat, neat little segue yeah personally. yeah and you're right uh, it's it's probably being way too pernickety to be like oh well, we don't know exactly how we got to this island <laughs> but although one thing it does raise is that um, what happened to Eric? Like, you know, we never, we never see him again. Both him and Rincewind leave hell together. Next time we see Rincewind, he's on some island, very, very far away from like Morpork. What happened to Eric? Do you know? Funnily enough, as I was reading it, I remembered it differently. I remembered, um, do you know, when they go back to the very beginning, the very beginning of the universe being created. Yeah. And then they were on the desert island, mm-hmm. and uh, Eric was saying, "Well, there's nothing to do here." I think I just blanked out the rest of the novel from that point. Yeah, okay. And I think I vaguely remember Rincewind managed to escape, but Eric is just left on the island for all of eternity. And maybe that was just kind of a, you know, any paternal instincts I had coming in is that's what I hope happens to you <laughs> because he's so irritating for most. But funny, don't get me wrong, he's a really funny character. Um, very, uh, what's the word? Very hormonal, let's yeah. say, which which is something I always really like in Terry Pratchett's work. But um, yeah, he he's he's kind of irritating at the start. Um, yeah, obviously. although uh, reading them uh, in order as we are now, albeit you know it's been a, a good while since I read Guards Guards because the podcast took a break. But he he's kind of um, he's quite refreshing as a character because the only teenagers we've really had in detail are Esk and Mort, mm. and um, Esk is certainly uh, saying on our um, episode about equal rights is. Like she's a you know she's an interesting character to read about, but she's um, a bit Mary Sueish, like you know, quite perfect. And Mort is, um, I, I suppose, a more relatable uh, teenage kind of figure, but he also has his positive quality. So it's it's sort of they have great. It's, it's funny, albeit it doesn't have the depth to read about a guy who's just essentially like a parody of all the like least desirable things we yeah. associate with kind of self-centered teenage nerds you yeah know? And, and for him not to just be a side character like uh saying something along the lines of sorry gov before he nicks someone's pocket or something like that yeah. you know that he actually has a bit of an arc or uh, yeah. would you like to see him crop back up in the, the disc world i mean it's rare enough over the course of the, whatever 40 books that you have characters that Ooh. other than ones that die in the novel they're introduced in. No, I don't think I'd want to see him come up again. Like, not that I didn't like him, but it's just that I like that uh, he is like he's supposed to be a parody of Faust, and I feel like if you brought him up again, it would cheapen the whole. Uh, it would cheapen this book a little bit. I yeah. think if uh, they brought him back in, I I was thinking that um, I think because his whole demonology shtick is kind of like a like a Discworld demon punk equivalent of uh, computer programmers and hackers. Demon punk, I like that. <laughs> Sorry, I came up with it myself, I did. Um, I, I think it would be fun if he had like a bit part role in some of the later watch books as their like tech guy. You know, ah, um, like in the yeah. same way that uh, Cheery is their forensics person. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know what situations they would have to, uh, you know, because the demons never really turn up again. But even that you have like demons and watches and stuff mm. like that. Um and running the organizers if for some reason they had to get something like you know someone's killed and their organizer is left there and that might have a clue but they can't get the demon in it to talk so yeah. they have to get eric to like hack it yeah um, <laughs> you know uh, that's that's a really good idea but i feel like even though it's um th- there's a character who kind of fills that role in a way is uh is it ponder stibbins is he the one who invents hex yeah 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 i feel like he kind of he kind of adopts that role like it's not not in terms of like demonology but like he does kind of have that whole he's the one who knows how things works you know yeah, he's yeah. the tech guy but for the wizards instead of uh, guards or yeah the guards so uh, it'd be interesting but uh, I feel like that's kind of explored a bit already yeah I don't think it's like a huge missed opportunity I was just pondering on it after I read it that like, uh, see you're already wanting to ponder see <laughs> 
Yeah, I just thought that if he were to show up, like, what, what could he do? Mm-hmm. Um, I just said that the demons don't really show up again, other than, like, in kind of, I suppose, smaller, more mundane form as, like, the power source for the watches and organizers and things like that. Um, why do you think that is, uh, after we get such a fleshed-out version of them here, and do you think that they Ooh. should, or would you have liked to see them come up? And- uh, well, I, I don't know. I mean... It, I, I'd imagine that, uh, to be honest, I kind of feel that uh, the reason that they're not utilized in the same way is because they'd be a bit banal, I suppose. Like for uh, they're kind of Terry Terry Bradshaw needs to find like a good, you know, uh, good antagonist for like whoever the mm-hmm. protagonist is in one particular novel. I feel like oh, I'll make him a demon. I feel like. I personally think that he just approached as no that's too lazy I'm going to come up yeah. with something better yeah. you know and as well as that he has this one and he does he, he does use it for this book but he also approaches demons in one of the most original ways you can possibly imagine with them as like a, a office workers yeah. like it. <laughs> and it's just bureaucrats. yeah oh it's absolutely genius like um yeah, no, I, they do come up in like little uh, bits and pieces though. Uh, one of my favourite uh, versions of it is in, oh, is it, it's one of the witches uh, books. I think it might have been the first one. Oh, when they summon the demon. Some of the, the demon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that one's really, really good. That's, that's a good appearance of a demon. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah that, that's just my personal. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I've heard, uh, I think it's in the art of the Discworld. He talks about with the, the elves, how like, um, like they're, uh, like interesting fun antagonists but they're sort of limited because they're just these kind of you know um, almost motiveless selfish shallow forces of evil mm. and the demons are sort of similar where like a lot of his later villains will be you know very much arise out of a particular social cultural context that that novel tries to explore in the yeah, yeah. the demons it's like you know they don't really you know whatever's going on in like Morfork or Blunk or whatever at the time is of particular interest to them beyond just a wider scope of humanity exactly um, yeah although you, you raise an interesting point there now actually um just with you were saying that uh in most books he uses it to explore uh something thematically that's going on like um culturally uh, mm-hmm. at the time and it's interesting in this one that uh, he uses demons kind of well i don't think he, he explores anything culturally but it's more apparent just it's it's a blatant parody of faust um we but uh Sorry, trying to remember what my point was here. So the point I was trying to bring up, but it was the most awkward segue that I've ever had, <laughs> was that I find it really interesting the way uh, Terry approaches real-world uh, history and real-world myth mm-hmm. and the way he incorporates that into the Discworld itself. Like, you know, just for example, like there's a whole chapter in there just dedicated to what is essentially Helen of Troy and the Battle yeah, of Troy. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's really interesting just the way he appropriates history to work within the Discworld and where like sometimes it's just completely ignored and sometimes like no this works and this um, what, what, what do you think like what do you think of his approach to it do you think it's a bit like a slapdash I'll just do whatever works or do you think it's more thoughtful um, I think it, it depends on the book like I like the fact that um, the what is it called the is it the Sortian War or um, so, yeah. is, is very much you know like a really direct obvious parody of the Trojan War mm-hmm. I feel like he's much more likely to do it like as a throwaway joke or in a book like yeah. this that's mm-hmm. a lot kind of like um, you know uh, seemingly shallower much more of a romp than like in you know we'll have stuff like like up next you have moving pictures and later you'll have soul music where he'll, he'll have these direct parodies and little throwaway mm-hmm. jokes like song titles or film titles but the, the, but the overall mm-hmm. thing itself won't be like I'm just going to, have to completely redo a historical event exactly, in a Discworld. Yeah. Like if you look at something like Jingo, I mean, it's about a lot of wars, and particularly there are a lot of um, allusions to the First World War when you talk about like being over by Hogswatch and the, the notion of the way they recruit the, uh, the you know the men and things like that. But it really stands in for a lot of different wars. Mm-hmm. It's not like he just had a look at World War One or the Boer War or something like that and just said, "I'll put that and dump it into Discworld." I feel like he's much more likely to do this. Uh, very direct kind of um, you know, parody or, or reference pastiche probably is a better word in either in kind of like as throwaway jokes or in the lighter novels like Eric mm-hmm. it's interesting actually that what, like when you kind of have to think about 
Eric DeNovo, like yeah, considering it, it within the canon of the Discworld series, like what exactly is Eric when you get right down to it? Because you know, it doesn't really feel like it's aimed at a younger audience per se, because it's just shorter. It's mm-hmm. not particularly easier to read, but it does have illustrations. It's um, I, 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 but at the same time, I thought maybe it's uh, it's supposed to be an intro novel of sorts because the humor, well, not the humor, is broader, but you know, it's it's more accessible because it has references like the Sortian War and you know stuff that is easily approachable in the real world. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out. What do you think the purpose behind Eric was, if 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 if, if any? Um, probably from the publisher's point of view, money, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, I I think maybe it comes at a point where, even though to us reading him chronologically, it seems like this odd throwback. Like already at this early stage, he's kind of grown out of the uh, fantasy theme park romp of Color of Magic and Life mm-hmm. Fantastic, and you know it, it it's it seems like a big step back. But if you think, I mean, at this stage, there's what like seven or eight books out um, and three of them in uh, the three Rinse ones Colour Magic Life Fantastic uh, and Sorcery are sort of those um, fantasy romps so that even from in retrospect you can see this trajectory of them growing the Discworld into something that's a much um, more nuanced uh, platform or setting for him to kind of explore a lot of stuff in real life mm. you imagine there's still some people at his publishing company who kind of feel like you know that that's only half the story and the other half is like that it is this rinse wind you know romping through a like a subversion of fantasy things so they think i'll do one of those again you know yeah yeah. and to us after 40 something books those that kind of stuff sticks out uh in contrast to the rest of them but at the time it was almost half and half you know Mm -hmm. uh and and maybe there were people in the you know uh who was it like um corgi or whoever published it at the time who felt like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, guards, guards, and that was okay, but we want something, you know, we we feel like people are buying these for yeah. the, yeah, for the, um, just like, Rincewind going through a lot of bizarre settings and a bunch of jokes along the way. Mm. Well, okay, I'm going to play devil's avocado here a little bit now, just, uh, so, do you think maybe this wasn't so much to do with the publishers, but maybe it was just uh, Terry Pratchett himself kind of saying, I'm going to do an easy one now. Uh, maybe and like uh, this is pure speculation because I honestly when I was reading about this I didn't come across uh, I couldn't find anything that like you know where he discussed his motivations but maybe it might have been that he liked Josh Kirby's art a lot and just thought like oh the idea of getting him to illustrate a whole, whole book sounds yeah, fun yeah interesting but I, idea, yeah. I feel like it I think it probably would have been some kind of pressure on the publishers because I know already by this stage he didn't really like doing Rinsen ones like sorcery he has admitted he kind of only went back to it because the popular demand to do another Rincewind book. Oh. Um, and he just sees the character as quite limited, uh, which, like, as much as sort of, um, like, I, I like Rincewind, he is, and there's probably a pretty good reason he only shows up as the protagonist of two more books, really, yeah. after this. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's only so much you can do. I mean, it's sort of a uh, chicken and egg situation where... Rincewind is an unsatisfying protagonist to write about for like you know book upon book upon book because he doesn't develop and it's just always a coward who's running from things yeah but he only doesn't develop because of the kind of books he has to be in if you know what I mean and that like yeah. myself and, and and Rose talking about I believe we we're talking about it when, when you were on the Mort episode about how like if you are reading them as they come out after Life Fantastic you might think like he's turned a corner and he'll become a better wizard and then you know in Mort you sort of uh, see that he really hasn't and certainly in Sorcery it's, it's made abundantly clear uh, he's still hopeless um, and like it feels like you could write more books where he's like maybe got a bit more competent and like while still pretty cowardly and cynical a bit more um, uh, I suppose has a bit more self-respect to not kind of run away as like you know pathetically and overtly uh you know cowardly as he does mm. but if you done that you couldn't have him as the protagonist for the kind of books he's in where he's just sort of like a tourist on the run you yeah, know yeah. like if you think of like the different like main characters of the Discworld who get written about in, like multiple books like granny Weatherax is very much grounded in Longcrow. now i know they have stuff like um masquerade where she goes thank more but like by and large 
longer sort of thing and more for his like vibes you know mm. death it, it's usually a big metaphysical yeah like, yeah. yeah like you know philosophy philosophies of the human condition so when you want to kind of would practice come up with something like uh like uh mad dash to all these historical bits of the this world that parody real world myth and history or you know a kind of hodgepodge asian or australian country it calls for rinsewind but then it also calls for a rinsewind that will not stop the kind of wonder and enjoy these things to make yeah. a more developed protagonist might because then it maybe loses some of its joke or urgency or at least he thinks so so yeah i think you're absolutely right actually and it it, it really makes sense for rinsewind to be the protagonist of the first two books where he is essentially trying to introduce us to the world mm-hmm. And the first two books, it is just non-stop running through, like, a great big chunk of the Discworld when you get right down to it. I mean, he literally goes off the edge of the world yeah, and back up onto yeah. the other side. So, great big chunks of it. So, it's no coincidence that every single book that Rinsman's in features, like, a different continent. I mean, uh, he explores 4X. Uh, and yeah. and I'm, I, I might be wrong, but I don't think there's... Any any other uh, occasion where we visit Forex, it, like it's it's referenced, but I don't yeah, think yeah, we really yeah. go there. Pretty much. So I think it might just be a case. I, I remember um, when I, I got the the map of the Discworld, mm-hmm. and you can see like the entire layout of it. And I'm pretty sure this was something that Terry Pratchett did quite early on. And I feel like Forex might have been like he's going to he'll throw in an Australia parody thing there. It just seemed like a good idea at mm-hmm. the time. But I feel like in hindsight, you're like, actually, there's not that much I can do with that. But, but that's why he dedicated a whole novel to it. He says, I'm going to explore this. I'm going to get as much as I can. And to his credit, great book. That's a really, really good one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that he, he knows himself. There isn't that much there that he can do with it. But he has the one novel with Rincewood running through. And it's great, actually, that that is his character. So much of it is him he's a character without an agenda per se literally all he wants to do is be safe and because the world of the disc world is such a cynical generally cruel but like <laughs> yeah, yeah very cruel dangerous. cruel but with a cruel sense of humor yeah. uh kind of world like that's perfect for uh rinse world to explore because all he has to do is crash into a character either physically or like you know socially mm-hmm. and then you're going to get like you're going to get a good exchange out of it because it's just they're going to want to hurt him um extort him or exploit him in some way and it's just him trying to get out of it and that makes for good reading that's the great thing um one other point though i will say about rinsman something i found earlier on and i was surprised actually to hear you say that uh he doesn't really like the rinsman books but i feel like he does like the character um itself because i mean because he's the protagonist of the first two books Mm -hmm. and because most writers start this way i imagine there's a lot of terry pratchett himself in rinsman um and I was just thinking about this because there's a point, I think it's when he first lands in Eric's basement. Yeah. And uh, the way uh, Terry Pratchett describes uh, Rincewind's prowess in uh, trying to avoid trouble or escaping or hiding, it's almost like admiration the way he does it. Um, he's, he says, what was it? He has one thing. Um, let me see if I can... He, he describes him as being like the eternal coward, like as a counterpoint to the eternal hero. Yeah, but there's like a mastery to his cowardness, yeah. per se. Like he, he scopes out everything before he does any, like before he does anything at all. Mm-hmm. Trying to think, okay, what do I have to do here? Um, I'll try to see. Uh, I, I can't find it anyway. But um, yeah, we'll come see. We'll come back to it. But mm-hmm. yeah, well, I, I think like I feel like part of the motivation for Rincewind initially was kind of like a, a Frank Grimes of fantasy. Yeah. Like, you know how uh, Matt Groening and other people from The Simpsons has talked about uh, Frank Grimes is like what a person in the, from the real world would react to if they were yeah. dropped in The Simpsons. And Rincewind's sort of similar in that, like, okay, like he's very much grounded in this world. Like he has his backstory of being a failed wizard and things like that. But that, you know, he's like a, a person with real world sensibilities dropped in these fantasy things where, you know, he people around him a lot of the time react in very generic ways yeah. and he just reacts like an actual person and kind of calls them out on how irrational are being and he just he kind of gets, ru- he ruins their sca- fun basically yeah, in, yeah, in yeah. every situation but in a really humorous way gets scared rather than awestruck and, and, and things like that but um, like after the initial joke of that is basically fully explored in Colour of Magic and, mm. and like Fantastic 
what you need then if you're to do with him is either for him to develop somewhat or for him to sort of have some interesting foil you know what I mean like like because otherwise it's just like like imagine Frank Grimes in every episode of The Simpsons just expressing uh, rage and frustration at Homer's antics it would it would go from being really funny to just feeling really bitter and sad yeah, you know and in the same you way mean. you feel like at a certain stage where we're in Swind, you're like okay like at this point just get used to the fact that you're in a fantasy novel and stop you know expecting things to be, go differently like, yeah, exactly, like find a yeah. way of dealing with this that like better than you know your kind of just dissatisfaction and, and cowardice um, so uh, I think actually this works a little better than Sorcery in the sense that myself and Rose talked about the Sorcery episode that he sort of has no really real place in the book like but at the one hand his, his cowardice kind of gets grating because it feels like it's a bit overdone after you know or kind of played out after uh, the first two books but at the same time, you're like, well, why are you even here? You have nothing to do with the plot. There's no reason why you can't leave this to other people. Whereas here, at least, the whole thing of him sort of being bound to Eric and having these magic powers that he doesn't really know what they, you know, what they come from. It, it just he sort of just got to shrug and go with it. Yeah. Uh, like structures him a little better, you know, um, and makes like uh, makes his sarcastic barbs towards Eric and towards the other characters they encounter like be uh, a bit more funny and a little less bitter because mm. you know you feel like oh well like he's he's just stuck being there and just like he doesn't need you know he doesn't even at one point he speculates whether he's died you know and it's like like the fact that he's he you know he's stuck in a situation that's horrible and has this gallo humor about it is a lot more enjoyable than he's just kind of hanging around a situation he doesn't really like making sarcastic comments you know yeah, absolutely, like, like yeah. giving him some kind of purpose or something to root him in this situation he doesn't want to be in mm. is is better than just like throwing him into you know a situation he reacts badly to without giving him a reason for it and actually um something that you you, you said there is just uh, made me realize i think in every uh in every book that rinsman appears in he always has a foil mm-hmm. there's like one of the very very few people who are kind of less accomplished than he is like they're, they're braver for, or for like or maybe just more naive but uh they are at the same token like they're just not as competent as he is yeah. like take for example two flower who is very naive but he is utterly utterly harmless he just happens to get by on his positivity mm-hmm. and it just seems to work out for him eric is somewhat similar in that um he's, he's got this false sense of bravado that's like brought on from all his uh, demonology studies and yeah. the like um but by the same token, he he hasn't got the same cop on really that uh, Rincewood has. Like I mean, you can see it when they go to that temple, mm-hmm. and he's just like, "Oh, it's the tribute. They're giving me loads of like gifts yeah. and all." And then Rincewood explores a little bit, and you know, discovers like, "Oh, well, they're about to chop his knackers off." Or <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and in the same way, in an interesting time, she sort of uh, like contrasted with the naive idealism of all the, the revolutionaries mm. like he is he, usually with someone who's in an extreme of naivete or, um, or kind of self-delusion that makes his skepticism and cynicism a bit better in comparison because yeah. he, he mm. seems more realistic yeah whereas when he's uh, not with someone like that that cynicism just comes across as grating actually there's one of the lines that I had in this one that I really really loved you know when he first meets Eric Mm-hmm. And Eric is still um, pretending to be, uh, again, very bravado sort of thing. And he says, uh, I'm prote- protected by many powerful ambulances. Oh, I wish I was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just love that. It's that very um, casual, very, very British sense of humor. You know, it's it's, uh, it's just very, very sarcastic. Very faulty towers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, absolutely, I mean, we kind of, we're probably being a bit, it hard on this after coming to it after the, the first few Discworld books but it yeah. just it's just like the first Discworld book you read and in a way like it wouldn't be a good one if you were recommending the series to someone because it is so different but if you just came through like whatever you're like it's a perfect book to read like in an airport because it's so you know yeah. short and just so com- you know so um, you know, part engaging of you know but if you read this like having not read any it, it would probably seem really hilarious and really fresh Absolutely. and sending up all these you know, fantasy conventions and situations. It's only that uh, it seems like a step back in terms of ambition compared to the other ones that makes it seem lacking. And you know what? I think actually presenting it as a Discworld novel the way they do is actually a bit uh, detrimental to it. I think 
I mean, this is going to sound like a very odd proposal, but I think even if the book itself was a different shape or size or something, just like, you know, as it was with, with the illustrations, that would mm-hmm. make all the difference in the world because it just it positions itself as something different. Yeah. And then once you have that firmly in your head, you get great enjoyment out of it simply because we're comparing it to all the others that it's, it's a little hard to, you know, hold it up to the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, of greatness that um, and I have no issue saying greatness I know I'm a little biased but that's why we're doing this but um, <laughs> absolutely you know it's it's. I think that's that's a lot of the reason for it it's, it's just a little unfortunate that it kind of I, I think there's also for me personally there's a certain sense of betrayal because like oh it's just you just kind of sidle in here late to the party because I only <laughs> discovered it late it's like what do you think you're doing the party started weeks ago <laughs> But um, that's just me. That's just part of how I feel about it. But I think yeah, they are no, right. They I, are right. Yeah. It's, um, we definitely are quite harsh of it, or harsh uh, when, you know, discussing it. But it, it, is, it is still a very good book. And personally, one of the, my favorite things about it is the way that it presents the demons, which is, you know, a, a very original, got to say. I mean, it, it's very much in the tone of um, Terry Pratchett. But uh, it's, it's very good omens. It's a good, it's a good... Um, you read good omens? Uh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I was thinking, it's a good parody of modern life uh, in in a way that a lot of people would relate to. Yeah, Just the whole office thing. Yeah, and, uh, like hell through boredom, and um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the, the do you know the bit in the book where he describes it, comparing it to. Um, the English hotel that's uh, just yeah, after yeah. finishing up a big event and just has one book on the coffee table. <laughs> yeah, I think there's another point where he says, like, the worst kind of, um, like, boredom or the worst kind of hell is, like, when, one, when you're paying for it and two, when you're su- feel you're, you're supposed to be having a good time. <laughs> and um, Which, like, reminds you of, like, say, like, going on really shitty nights out, you know, where you, exactly, you, go, yeah. you go to, a, like, a, you know, a club you don't like and it, it's someone's birthday and you're kind of, like, trying to make the best of it and it's like, oh, this is, this is awful, you know, if, if all I were... the more so because, like, I feel like there's people around me who are enjoying this and I feel like I should be too. Um, if I recall correctly, uh, sorry to interrupt you. I remember that we were actually on a night out once in uh, somewhere in town, and we both looked at each other, realized we weren't having much fun because the music was too loud and the conversation was too vapid. So we went to a supermax. Uh, I think we got a muffin <laughs> yeah. each and discussed how much we love Sam Vines yeah. for about an hour, <laughs> and that was a really great night. So yeah, uh, you know, we absolutely. we managed to avoid hell. We escaped hell much yeah, like Rincewind yeah, did. We, we climbed out of it. But yeah, no, it's excellent comparison though. It really is, and um, oh, it's just yeah. And and thinking about it, the, like there's a lot of times where uh, uh, I've mentioned before how like it's like a strength. And occasionally a weakness of Pratchett's that he's unafraid to repeat an idea or go back to it. And some mm. of the time, like a lot of times, it's a strength because it's a case of he touches on an idea in one book and feels like, no, I haven't really done that. There's more to it to be mined there. And he goes back to it, you know, and, and it's again. And sometimes it's a weakness because you feel like even maybe just, just being another kind of rinsewind book that you feel like, oh, when you're reading them, in, you know, in order or read them all, it feels like, oh, well, we've heard this, we've seen this done better elsewhere. Mm. But, um, I do wonder whether we like think a little better of this if, like, say the the the, the like hell boring idea, you know, sort of satanic bureaucracy had been explored in a later Discworld book, and then we view Eric as like, oh, Eric's the book where he started coming up with this idea, and then mm-hmm. you know it reached its apogee in this. When in actual fact, he probably himself and Neil Gaiman developed it more in Good Omens, you know, which is yeah, obviously yeah. outside of the Discworld canon. So. That's why he never goes back to that idea because they just did. I mean, they do it wonderfully there. Yeah. So you, you, it, it makes Eric kind of seem like much again, much more of a a cul-de-sac or a like um you know uh, uh stick out like a sore thumb among the Discworld books because you can't see where it's you know things are developing on from it. But obviously, he was developing on from it. It just wasn't in the Discworld. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Although one of the things that um I was noting when I initially was reading through this is that. Like, we see so much of the Discworld in it, but a lot of it, like, it's, it feels like a lot of world building, but yet a lot of that isn't followed on. But then I feel like, in other ways, a lot of it is planting the seeds for stuff that will come later. Like, say, the, the Tezuman Empire, who we, we'd only ever seen before, but I think that wonderful joke about them having a calendar that counts down rather than up, and no one, no one knows what it's counting down to. 
mm-hmm. and we see them in this uh, when they like hate their creator. What was it, Quez o- over over Koto? Oh um, yeah, Quez over Koto. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the description of him. What was it, like half dragon, half scorpion, half chicken, half <laughs> man? Like, it's, it's, which makes it like it's like three demons, three and a half uh, homicidal maniacs. <laughs> but uh, again, there's such brilliant uh, jokes throughout this. But um, but yeah, like obviously they are kind of dipped into a civilization. Never touched on again in the Discworld, but the whole, their whole situation does feel like it's like the very early seeds of what would later be explored in Small Gods, you know, mm. like this mm. uh, civilization that has kind of uh, like is laboring under a religion that nobody really likes, but they're all kind of stuck doing because of habit and just because of a kind of, you know, it's become such an intrinsic part of their society that they're afraid to do anything else. Yeah. Um. Similarly, like the the Tessortian War bit, uh, is obviously again like a bit of history that's ne- I, I don't think is is really touched on. But the whole business about Laviolus being unusual and being a general in in that like he actually tried to say you know spare most lives as possible, and most generals just think like you know you just throw uh, in the words of Zach Brannigan wave after wave <laughs> of my own men. Um, <laughs> It feels like it's stuff that is touched a lot more on in Monsters Regiment than in particularly in Jingo, mm-hmm. when you have like Rust, talk, Lord Rust, talking about tactics and how just how like um, I suppose like infantile and uh, juvenile his his idea of war is, and <laughs> but Pratchett also touching on like the tragedy of that of like these are the guys that are in charge, you know, or what they call heroism will result in like massive loss of life. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's there's stuff like that where they in themselves aren't like you know, gone back to directly, but like they they also for like they also um feel like they're the seeds of something different. Even the the satanic bureaucracy feels sort of like the authors of reality or the authors are sorry, auditors of reality hmm. in being like just this force for boredom, like malignant boredom <laughs> being a thing, you know, that uh <laughs> like hates interesting things or hates, you know, uh, variety and imagination I feel like again this is very much um, the British sense of humor coming out like, I felt like um, if it was an American author and they were describing the demons of hell it would go down a very, I mean now this is very uh, painting in very broad strokes but you know you, you get like the representation of demons is all the fury the anger and all that kind of stuff whereas then you have like again and it, it is Again, broad strokes. It's like the most British sensibility in the world. It's like it's all about you know boredom, yeah. dull, and uh, you know no excitement whatsoever. And that idea of being absolutely excruciating to have to you know mm-hmm. conceive of. Oh, but it's um, go, going back to uh, Laviolus. Actually, you touched on something there. What What do you think of um, him as a character? Uh, the idea of uh, painting a little bit of Rintwin's backstory. Well, his heritage, really. Um, I, I kind of like him and I just what mm. we were talking about earlier about like what would you do with Rinspin did you have to like develop him and have him get in any way more competent or confident you sort of see it with Laviolus because he has Rinspin's same you know cynicism and that same sort of uh, I suppose genre savviness of like yeah. he knows he's in this uh, stereotypical mythic war and he knows how the other people are going to act and he just thinks it's stupid Yeah. Um, but he's much more um, proactive and puts to much better use than Rinsman yeah, does. You I know, like, like, like he's a general and he comes hatches this plan that will result in the least loss of life mm. to capture uh, Eleanor um, and bring her back and end the war. And as like in a, he seems in a very Rinsman like way, he's very cynical about it and he's very kind of like frustrated by the sort of gung ho stupidity of those around him. Mm. But he's never running away from it. He's just sort of you know, resigned, like, oh, well, like, I'm stuck doing this, it's stupid, but what's the smartest way I can take myself out mm-hmm. of it? You know, and uh, whereas Rincewind, um, I suppose most of the books either end up with him, maybe he arrives at that point at the very end, or he's just sort of left, well, like, okay, well, there's absolutely no way, no nowhere left to run, I'll have to do some, something now, you know? Yeah. Him developing, if he were ever to develop, it might seem more like Laviolus, where he still has that cynicism and that genre savviness, but is a bit more... Uh, competent and responsible and kind of just resigned to the idea that um, you know I know I'm going to be doing this so what's the best thing I can do you kind of see it actually a little bit in The Last Hero when he volunteers himself and he says to Vetinari about 
Uh, like I, I know if I don't, some you know I'll just end up doing this thing anyway. That's what I always have to do. On that note, though, I that's one aspect of the last hero that I felt was always a little bit lazy. Yeah. Because I mean, it's 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 he saves it a little bit because it is kind of a gag, and it's like, oh god, actually, yeah, that's true. They probably would. It's it's like he's uh, he's covering up contrivance by pointing it out. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like. Uh, by simply announcing in the story that like okay Rinsman's going to be in the story how do you think of a reason well how about we just say listen he's going to be in the story yeah, he knows yeah. he's going to be in it one way or another so we might as well just say that it kind of works don't get me wrong and I like it it's better than having some really paper thin contrived reason mm-hmm. but I do feel like he could have done a better job on that one um, but going back to Laviolus uh, I think it's one of the aspects of Eric that is very well thought out because, uh, whereas a lot of it, I mean, don't get me wrong, it, it, most of it is quite well thought out, but Laviolus in particular is very good because it would be all too easy to have one of Rincewind's ancestors simply be Rincewind mm-hmm. in an older time. But it's interesting that they actually allow Rincewind to be a distilled version of Laviolus. It's almost as if yeah. um, he started with Laviolus and then worked down to get to Rincewind as opposed to vice versa. Because it would be very hard to kind of think, okay, well, what happened to... Laviolus to, or what? What didn't happen? Sorry, what happened to Rincewind to, you know, turn him into the person that isn't Laviolus? If if you follow me, sorry, I'm not phrasing that very well, but um, yeah, I just think it's it's very interesting that uh, as you say, he's so proactive and uh, yeah, he's just he's he's an assertive character. He's he's more in your face. He'll actually like you know attack people. Well, not attack people. Verbally attack people mm-hmm. anyway. Um, even just the way he complains at people, it's it's more you know complaining at people rather than the whinging that uh, Rincewind does. You know when he's in hell, he's, you could have yeah. told someone you know ten years, my god. <laughs> yeah, and actually, yeah, like despite kind of uh, things like time travel and the abundance of magic, like meeting your ancestor isn't a thing we see a whole lot of in the, mm. this world. So even that kind of uh, makes it notable in itself. True. True. Yeah. Um. Talking about the, the world building, one thing it actually does build on a bit is uh, Unseen University is a lot more calmed down than obviously Sorcery, yeah. uh, where it's in Sorcery it's sort of reverted to its, you know, uh, backstabbing, very like high octane magic politicking. Um, whereas now, I, like, I love that business of the, the Arch Chancellor uh, being. Um, just coming down one day to find everyone calling him Sir and yeah, he just yeah. made Arch Chancellor without him knowing because after all that had happened in Sorcery and after the sort of high turnover rate of um, Arch Chancellors and people kind of high in the pecking order they just wanted to calm down a bit so they shoved someone into the job who they knew was you know too old and too uh, like um, you know uh, complacent to uh, to be a threat um, so yeah so like uh, we'll, we'll see you see a lot more of that then in like soon in uh moving pictures with uh Victor and Ponder doing their like student exams mm. and the, the whole business of like Victor being this permanent student and that whole like lifestyle he has, even though uh how would you put it like canonically within the books like he's presumably been in Unseen University for a while, but he talks about him yeah, staying on as a student. I don't think he's that old, but he's certainly like you know in his twenties or something. But so he's presumably been there a few years. But in a metatextual sense, it feels like Victor definitely wasn't at the unseen university of sorcery or the life fantastic. You know, like mm. that unseen university doesn't have student exams that are just stressful in the way that the leaving cert or your A levels are stressful. That unseen university probably forces students to kill one another to see who passes on to the next grade yeah you know? i guess um, you mean, yeah so like uh we see the beginnings of it here with the, just like a uh, harmless old man being like yeah humorously forced into the role of our chancellor and <laughs> no longer being something that like you know really cutthroat machiavellian wizards you know compete <laughs> for uh with their schemes um and even the way like the um the way they p- perform the uh, the, the right of Ashkent, yeah. Um, like I, I laughed out loud with that, but uh, that uh, I laughed out loud with that line of death. You know, they're like, "Is he here? Is he here?" And that's like, who are we all waiting for? <laughs> um, I mean, it's yeah. somewhat similar. They do something similar in Life Fantastic, where they kind of uh, like 
set up the right ass games like it's gonna be something quite grand and then mm. Dex shows up with a with a drink and that kind of punctures the, oh, the yeah. solemnity of it I love but, that um, yeah the deuce uh, uh, like again having it having it happen here really gets on the fact that just Unseen University is just going to be this all these like uh, harmless complacent kind of conservative stick in the mud old duffers who are just trying to avoid <laughs> doing a hard day's work yeah, and are yeah. quite pompous rather than these you know crazy cutthroat threats to humanity it's really over the next three books like I said we'll see with Victor and, and Ponder and um, Moving Pictures and then by Reaper Man I think it's the one following that mm. and that's the first one with Red Cully and the first uh, one that yeah. you have uh, Unseen University subplot with Wendell Poons and the, the sh- and the shopping centre and all of that oh um, yeah so did, that is one bit of you know world building that like it's I, I talked about earlier how some of the seeds are much more indirect like it's uh, something that he'd explore later in a different form but this is something that ex- you know is explored uh, much more directly later and we sort of see the origins of it here mm. and and the idea of the Arch-Chancellor not being the nominal authority figure but not really being in charge yeah and uh, Astafagal the, the demon king being something similar yeah. uh, sort of follows on from stuff like from pyramids where you have Tefik running a kingdom that's really run by the you know the um high priests and so on hmm. uh, and like where the power really lies in uh, Lankra with the witches and the kings and all like that's definitely something he kind of has oh. explored before that has a bit more thematic depth to it than it's a lot of the other just like fun and games of Eric it's funny how actually the one except like that is the theme that uh, rises again and again and again in so many books but the one exception to it is actually Ankh Morpork where Lord Veterinary yeah. very much is the the ruler there's no question and it, and it's odd because he has the title um but and like there's there's nothing really to suggest it, it, it's it's all to do with his demeanor you know there's nothing really to suggest like why can't we overtake this man you know why it's and because he's you know he's a slight it's it, in the descriptions he's always he's quite a slight man but you just wouldn't mess with him because it's always really delightfully vague how mm. bad things just seem to happen to people who like cross the yeah. uh, patrician um, this except when he does the mimes there's nothing vague about that the what? when he, he hangs mimes oh yeah like, that, that's <laughs> actually that's one of the better jokes that's really really good but um, it's it's just bizarre he, he's uh, I know he's not in this book but just to touch on him briefly it's like I always find uh, Veterinary to be one of the more fascinating characters because there's moments in it that I think are almost fan service but feed into his character really well there's a moment in Jingo I think mm-hmm. where um I think he does knife throwing, is it, or something like oh, that? Oh, he's juggling. Oh, he's juggling. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and and um, who's a Sergeant Colon? Is like I didn't know you could juggle, sir, as well. I'd never tried before. It was like, it's it it serves his character so well because you know it's it's kind of fan servicey just to say, oh well, veterinary, he can do anything he wants, but that is sort of what his character is about. You know, he, he he's got an analytical mind, and juggling is all about. It's basically mathematical, mm-hmm. and that's how you know he went about it. It makes sense, which is great. Um, this book is one of the ones that I feel like, it, even though it makes sense, it gets dangerously close to being flippant. Now, and I know this is going back to the argument like uh, it's just a fun book; you should yeah, leave yeah. it at that. But uh, one thing I will say in its favor is that it gets very close to the real world. In we've we've spoken about this about the Trojan slash Sortian War. But there's another aspect of it as well when um, they meet the creator oh, and yeah, yeah. he starts talking about the multiverse and there's, what is it? He says something along the lines of, um, they're questioning, you're the creator, there's no our creator, there's loads of the boogers. Yeah. Um, you know, trying to finish them all, it's like painting the, painting the, oh, loss, you know, and, and it's kind of, it's a slight, just because they're talking about multiverses mm-hmm. there and the fact that they use a phrase that they're clearly supposed to be the Sistine Chapel, and like, it's it's just a nice little throwaway. It's like, oh yeah, this could be this place could exist just in a different universe, yeah. you know, which is the whole concept of like multiverses. It's it's a, it's a neat little touch, I think. In, in the science of the disc world, don't they in, don't they imply that like Ricoli and the wizards end up creating our universe? Yeah, I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, I think um, because they're talking about the shape of it, saying it doesn't make any sense. People are just gonna fall off the bottom of it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, um, which is actually a argument I saw legitimately made on the internet recently for why for like a flat earth oh, and why gravity's a myth 
was like, oh, all the water would just flow to the bottom. Oh, yeah, your move, your move, science. <laughs> Actually, there's one brilliant line in this where it says, um, multiple exclamation marks are a sure sign of a diseased mind. And I just thought, oh, that sums up the internet. <laughs> You're not wrong. Isn't I think that's a line that he uses again. Yeah, in, yeah, um, I'm sure. Um, it's one of the guards' books, I believe, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? Uh, I think it's Men at Arms. That no, no. There's a bit in about Men at Arms about Edward the, Edward Death being able to tink in italics and that being like <laughs> you, you want to look out for. But I'm sure the line does come up again. Um, as I said, like strength and weakness that he'll kind of reuse things and like uh, certainly like reuses the odd joke here and there. <laughs> Can I draw your attention to something for a second? Oh, draw away. Sex. Good God. <laughs> Just to ask- I thought, I'd never thought this, this this podcast would stoop to the levels of the gutter. Should we just try kitchen sink. We should just try out the entire microphone right now. No, but um, I wanted to bring this up because, uh, you know, it's maybe it's because I haven't read a Discord book in a while because mm-hmm. uh, this is the first one I've done on the podcast since Mort. But um, I feel like there's... And maybe it's just because Eric is a hormonal teenager, yeah, but I yeah. feel like there's a lot of references to um, sex and, uh, you know, just that kind of uh, repressed way that Terry Pratchett talks about sexes, which is really, really funny. It's like, it's kind of, um, it's harmless, but it's also rampant at the same time, which I find really, really hilarious. Mm-hmm. Like innuendos like abound in uh, Discworld, but it's never really blatant. Um I don't know. What do you? What, I mean, can you tell me? You, you've read the last uh, six, seven books, I think. Um, it, yeah. Did you find it was more? There was a more abundance of um, innuendo in this one, or is um, it? Uh, it it's like uh, it's sort of a bit more on the nose because of Eric's like hormonal teenage thing, mm-hmm. like the way he talks about. Uh, at one point, he says he wants to be a eunuch but there's a kind of innocence to it as well because stuff like that it's like like he uses it to make a lot of you know jokes about sort of dirty minded exactly uh, stuff but advanced, also advanced like, horology I believe is like one of them like, oh yes <laughs> yeah but Eric also seems so clueless you'd think like he wouldn't know what to do with a woman it's like like um, and I don't know if this is deliberate or this is that like he like he hasn't like quite uh, tapped into teenage horniness in, in the way that he was aiming to but I feel like, like when you know Eric's wishes of like becoming ruler of the world and living forever and meeting the most beautiful woman, like the meeting the most beautiful woman one is just because it's something he's heard is cool. Like from yeah. the, the other cooler boys yeah. who don't spend all their time in their room doing demon things. And like if he was like, oh yeah, I'd love to have sex, and he probably wouldn't know what sex was. Yeah, like it feels like you know, like when you're at you know, uh, in like late primary school or something, and I, I whether. I know whether the other people are just pretending as well or there's some people who just like hit puberty earlier or get savvier about these things and they, they talk about it so you just like say oh yeah that must be a good thing that I must want but you still don't know why entirely yeah yeah I, I, I feel he's, he's sort of like that um, and, and I don't know whether that's like like deliberate or it's a kind of uh, just a sort of consequence of having to talk about sex but being able to just like you know literally have him spewing out full on like sexual slurs and innuendos there. well I don't think even if uh, you know even if that happened to sink in with the audience he was going for I don't think that's how uh, Terry Pratchett would actually write in any case I mean mm. he uses innuendo uh, to brilliant effect for comedy you know so I, I think if um, you know someone would like if suddenly people were to start you know spewing out like horrible like uh, sexually explicit explicit content that was ruin the innuendo mm-hmm. a certain amount you know it wouldn't have the same effect because this is kind of a world steeped in it yeah you know yeah. so um yeah to have like one character ruin it all that they literally would just ruin everything so yeah yeah but yeah. it also feels like to do a convincing horny teenager like you would be really crude you know mm-hmm. um in, in a way that uh, eric isn't but it's probably a lot funnier that way yeah but it, it, it that's what i mean that does make him seem like less kind of uh, like you know like a sex crazed teenager who like in our world would be using his programming skills to like you know whatever download reams and reams of porn and more like a kind of like you know young kid who's just hitting puberty but doesn't really know entirely what's you know like if, you th- 
If you, you think about it, um, Eric kind of does like the fantasy equivalent of that. He downloads Rincewind to get him the most beautiful woman <laughs> in the world. Yeah, yeah. He has essentially downloaded yeah, more in the fantasy true. setting. I, th- I think even the, the acronym of his um, of his uh, demon summoning book, uh, the acronym of it is MS DOS. Is it? Yeah. So like, it's very, there's a lot of oh wow, okay, and not so subtle paralleling like yeah, his demonology skills of being like a hacker or computer programmer so I mean yeah you're right like him yeah downloading Rincewind is god that's excellent (laughs) I wonder if uh, you could say that like you know trying to rule the world would be just like trying to acquire lots of friends on Facebook would that be uh, something like that I don't know he'd probably like be getting like incredibly popular like like having like a really big viral video you know being Mm. a really famous YouTuber or something that would be like ruling the internet. I wonder if there's going to be much links between this or many links between this and, um, oh, was it, uh, what was the name of, what was the book that brought the clacks into this world? Uh, going Postal. Was it Going Postal? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean that, that was great. I love that. That was just a, you know, an internet, um, or that was just emails and it was just, I really liked the way they brought that into it. It wasn't too overt, but at the same time, it was quite obvious. You know, mm-hmm. it's just it, it was nice. But um, that's the only example I can think of that really brings like uh, technology, like you know, computer technology into the this world. Yeah, so, yeah all that and hex. Oh, and hex, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose it's it's a thin line to tread where you know you at a certain point you cross over from being like demon punk to being full on sci-fi. Yeah, and I'm glad that he doesn't do it too much. Like yeah. it's it's not it's not like over the top because if it did, uh, you know, there are times where I think he gets a bit too he gets close to getting caught up into what he's parodying and like uh, forgetting that this it's it's still like a fantasy world and mm-hmm. not just a parody. I mean, it it is, yeah. but well, in a way that works. Yeah, it's, so. it's more it's more interesting, I suppose, when whatever his kind of fantasy world world equivalent for a certain uh, technology isn't just simply oh it's that thing but it's magic you know what I mean mm. where it comes with its own little complications and you know bells and whistles like like moving pictures is a great example we'll be talking about it like next time where I mean essentially it is cinema but he doesn't have to like discover how to make film so it's like the demons the demons painting, the pictures. painting inside yeah, yeah, yeah and like when he gets to the bits where they're trying to figure out how to do sound it's interesting because you like it's not just like reading oh well here's how they develop sound for films in real life it's you you know his way of doing it is sufficiently different that you're like oh yeah how, how will they make sound here it's, it's kind of funny to talking about like experimenting with mm. training parrots to recite the dialogue and you know like like this uh these different kind of things like like that sort of stuff's you know um more interesting they're just like oh it's uh, it's it, it's films, but it isn't science. It's magic, and you know, yeah. like, like then when you have to kind of get into the nitty gritty of it, the nitty gritty is interesting because he has to differentiate it from just it being a technical manual of an actual mm. real life technology. It's definitely one of his strengths, absolutely. <laughs> um, a lot of like we we've talked kind of around the fact that this book is quite like tin underground compared to the others, both in terms of its length. And it's like sort of uh, thematic depth. So, um, un- like, unless you have um, anything more to add, what I what I sort of wanted to kind of wrap up our main discussion on was just something where we say really plainly, like, what's your least favorite and favorite bits in this? Because a lot of the talking we've been doing is like, oh yeah, it's not really as good as mm. the other ones, but it is really good in its own way. So kind of like. In very concrete terms, like what you know, what was the bit like you didn't like the most, and the bit you did? Oh, um, I suppose you know this is really going to sound like I'm just sucking up to Terry Pratchett, but um, one of the main issues I have is just that there's not enough of the book in it. You know, it's just too short, um, and I don't just mean that because oh well, like you know, there's only 140 pages, yada yada yada, but it's the fact that it touches upon some aspect. Like death shows up at the start. And you kind of think, oh, he's going to have a big role to play in it. But I don't think he even shows up again after the... Oh, he does he for does. briefly, briefly in um, the Rite right of Ash game. But that's it, the you know. The universe. Um, it just it doesn't feel very cohesive. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, like, the wizards show up. And again, it's just to kind of set up the story. But that's it. Yeah. You know, um, 
and the, the rest of it's kind of a romp and that's fine but just it just it just doesn't feel very um it doesn't feel exactly like a finished project it just feels like something that happened if that yeah. makes sense and but on the plus side what i do really like about it is almost the same point it is a romp it is just a fun book that you can just like fl- it's it's weakness is also its strength mm-hmm. essentially it's just a fun romp it's a it's a snapshot of the disc world and um little side note i do absolutely love his interpretation of hell you know there's the idea of boredom as torture it's an ingenious idea and he explores it in a way that is just, his comparison to the english hotel is just golden mm-hmm. how about you anyway um I suppose my my least favorite is probably I mean similar to you the kind of like ep- episodicness of it, which is like makes it kind of fun to read, but also like leaves you wanting more in a bad way. Particularly at the end, the way like the you know I, I love the idea of Rincewind and Eric leaving Hell on a road paved in good intentions, mm-hmm. and I love the closing scene with Astavigil in his office and you know just being alone there but being happy. But, like, once you've got past that initial neatness of him kind of wrapping up how all the wishes actually did make everyone happy, it feels sort of like, oh, wait, what, that's it? Like, that's, you know, it feels like more of us was an anticlimax compared to, like, the big confrontations and epic battles that you get mm-hmm. at the end of, you know, even the other Rincewind books, let alone the other, uh, even the other three Rincewind books we've talked about so far, let alone the other Discworld books. Well, certainly the end of, um... Uh, like fantastic and sorcery you get big confrontations and even uh, color of magic feels like it's sort of uh, a climax in them literally going off the world let's um, not forget mort as well which has like the best showdown in the history of the entire yeah series yeah. <laughs> well, know, but it's, it's a pretty excellent one but but my favorite bit uh by quite a bit is the, the bit at the end of the universe with death uh i think it, it oh, does yeah. in a book that isn't really about him it does one of the best jobs of kind of summing up his kind of uh, his loneliness but also his sort of cosmic transcendence of basically every other character in it like just mm. you know him, um, him waiting there at the uh, at the end and all the lines about like nothingness stretching out for infinity and um, and then it gets a great bit of humour in with like the first thing when matter starts to reform for a new universe it just comes in forms of like shirt buttons and paper, and paper clips, clips yeah. Um, yeah so like I think like that bit is a great mixture of sort of like uh, sort of awe-inspiring writing, taking the disc world to a, a, a place and a time you probably maybe you, you don't see in any other book, and maybe you really couldn't other than maybe some of the death books, and um, but also interjecting it with humor, um, mm. so that that feels very measured. Like you don't feel like oh, I, I want to hear more about the end of the universe. It just feels like that was a, a you know fun, interesting trip to the end of the universe. Yeah, that, it's that not something that you could do in any, in well as you say, except for the death uh, books, but if you did it, I suppose it's good that in this book, because it's such a fun romp, you can throw it, it's almost something that I can imagine Terry Pratchett having an idea of, like, well, I can't think of any novel to put that into because it would need to be better integrated into the story. It works here because it's fun, it's a casual book despite being like, travelling through time and space, but yeah. it is a fun, casual book that you can drop something like that in there and say, Oh yeah, and this is um, you know this is what the end of the world is like and stuff like yeah. that. So I I also like that bit a lot about um, Astavigil knowing there's only two possible places they could be, and, and he, he went to the, the wrong, wrong one, one first. That's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the, the way he sort of acts around death is very cool as well. When he loses school and gets his claws past this kind of um, mm. sort of his facade of tacky. Uh, respectability <laughs> but um, also sort of being a bit wary and you know respectful around death is, is pretty fun yeah that's great yeah <laughs> um, okay so that could that more or less brings to a close our, our discussion of Eric it's like we were saying it's a, it's a tough one to get your teeth into uh, when I was preparing for this um, a lot of the like there's a, a couple of blog series I'll look up that like go through a lot of the Discworld books and I'll you know just read them for some uh, inspiration some of the like very interesting things to say and most of them were just like oh yeah it's tough to write about Eric because there's you know there's all <laughs> you could say <laughs> it's tough to podcast about Eric <laughs> that's what the name say. of our podcast should have been <laughs> we need to talk about Eric but we don't really want to <laughs> hopefully it should be a lot easier next time with uh, moving pictures but anyway for now what re- there remains is for us to fit Eric into our um, ranking of the uh, 
top best Discworld books ever. You'll need to remind me of this. the best ones we have encountered so far <laughs> in this uh, reread podcasting process. And this is a strange one because obviously me and Rose compiled the first few together. Mm. And um, now... You just so we've just sort of got to uh, fit him into it from there. Like I'm sure you probably disagree with the fact. That I basically want to turn your list upside down. Essentially, <laughs> <laughs> no. I'll, I'll take I'll take uh, I'll take what you have more or less as gospel, and I'm sure I'll do enough damage as the list gets bigger. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so, actually, I'll, I'll, um, yeah, I, I uh, shouldn't need to remind not only you but me because it's been a while since we've done it. I'll just bring the list up. So the list as it stands in. Uh, descending order is number one pyramids number two guards guards number three mork number four weird sisters number five delight fantastic number six equal rights number seven sorcery and number eight color of magic so where do you think eric fits can i say one quick thing i find it really interesting that the bottom four are all rincewind novels um, oh well, no, equal rights is, is toward bottom. Oh right, yeah, uh, well, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I, it's it's funny actually. I, like a lot of stuff I came across, people really didn't like Life Fantastic because they're you know they said oh, it's basically just color of magic without the excuse of it being the you know the first one. Yeah. Um, but I think it's like color of magic with a plot, which <laughs> makes it yeah makes that it better makes more for me. Sense. Yeah, um, yeah. And like uh, yeah, I think there's some there's. Uh, some genuinely like very good bits in, in Life Fantastic. I think this is comparable. Like some of the, like certainly like I mean the top four of that list are excellent, mm. and they'll probably still feature relatively highly as we go forward. But it's going to be painful, even like you know supplanting them with things because you feel that they deserve love, even if there's stuff there that's better than them. Absolutely. Um, um, but, well, okay. Sorry, your last one was the color of magic. You said. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. Even though I like it a lot, I don't think I put this above the color of magic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, me, me neither. Um, I think like color of magic sort of. Uh, I, I I feel bad for it being the bottom one at the moment, even at the moment. Although I don't think it will be. Uh, I, I'm sure it, it won't be. It won't be anywhere, anywhere yeah, even near the relegation zone by the end of it. This is but, such a difficult one because we talked about it before. It's so hard to just you know separate it from. It is separate. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it feels unfair because, like, it was originally like published sort of while like within the Discworld canon, um, not you know in conjunction with the main books, but like while we're doing it, we've got to fit it in. And essentially, it's like we're rating it as a Discworld novel, so we might as well do yeah. it as such. And, and essentially, it's it's like a retread of the kind of ideas of the previous Rincewind books, but just a bit thinner on the ground and coming that bit later in the series. Where mm-hmm. I mean, you're looking on and thinking. I feel he's developed you developed uh, past this mm. so I think it's got to go bottom for the moment my vote will be the bottom as well yeah, so sorry Eric, Eric. <laughs> so Eric you are our new number nine um, and so hope you enjoyed that uh, we will be back relatively soon um, and hope we'll be back regularly to talk this world but we'll be back relatively soon next time to talk about moving pictures which i'm really looking forward to i think it's a really underrated um, absolutely i love moving pictures okay well i guess i will talk to you then yeah well i I mean i I hope we'll talk in between we'll presumably talk after we stop recording no as soon as we stop recording all the conversation will yes just gonna get up and leave okay he's not gonna talk to me till when we do moving pictures Uh, i'll talk to you before then goodbye Ten thousand light years from home.